Amen. Very good. What a way to worship the Lord. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And if you were here last week, you know that we have been discussing three must-win battles that every Christian faces. In fact, when the history of your life is written, these battles that we're talking about now, that we talked about last week and then today and then again next week, these three battles, it'll turn out that they will be the decisive battles in your life. And they will go a long ways toward determining the outcome of your life and the outcome of your family's life. We need to know how to win these battles. Imagine if you were in a war and uh, you were fighting for your life, but you had the unique opportunity of going behind the any lines to get into the, uh, to the war room and to look at the strategy that was being developed to defeat you. What if you had an opportunity to look and see exactly how the enemy planned to attack? And not only did you get those plans, but you were able to bring them back and you had somebody who had never lost a battle before to go over those plans and give you a strategy for victory. And not only that, but this one who had never lost the battle said that he will go to battle with you and that he will give you the strength and the wisdom and the might that you need to win. Well, that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 4, because we're going to see these battles, but more than that, we're going to see how Jesus, the one who has never lost the battle, can come alongside us and help us to experience victory. So there are many ways that we could describe the full effect of the temptations that we face I think it's the Apostle John who talked about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus, that talked about sin as uh, our desires being enticed, and then that gives birth to sin, and then sin grows in our lives and ultimately brings death. It brings the death to joy and the death to relationships. It can bring uh, death to Uh, our influence, and our ministry. But I think the best place we can look to really understand these battles is right here in Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus fights the battles that we will fight. And so uh, what I want us to do is to first just catch the the setting here. Uh, Jesus has gone away for 40 days for this purpose, to be tempted by the devil, Uh, He has fasted for 40 days, which means that no food and and likely no water. This was a supernatural fast. And so we find Jesus, he is hungry, he is weak, and he is alone. He is vulnerable to the attack of Satan, and so Satan comes on the attack. Now, it's interesting to see how Satan attacks Satan. uh, Jesus, he, he, he doesn't attack the way that you might expect that he would attack. He, he, he doesn't try to harm Jesus physically. He doesn't try to cause pain. He doesn't try to frighten Jesus or intimidate Jesus. No, he does something very different. And, and the way he attacks Jesus, I think, is the same way that he attacks us. Sometimes I hear people talk about these strange, uh, demonic, spiritual warfare experiences that they think that they have. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know about that. I know that most of the time when when Satan attacks me with temptation, he just sets something in front of me that entices me. And that's how he attacked Jesus. 
And I think that's how he will attack you. One day this last week, I, I left the church late. I had had meetings for a long time. I had not had chance to grab anything to eat. Uh, I didn't really want to go to a restaurant and sit down. I didn't want to go home and fix something because uh, it was just too late. And I wanted to get to bed. Uh, but I also didn't want any fast food. I've had enough fast food for the rest of my life. And so I was just driving up and down North Street looking for something that I could eat that would be quick. And I found, and maybe you've been there, some Cajun restaurant that's just opened. It's just a building you walk up to on the other end of North Street. And so I decided, well, I'll just go there and see what they have. And so I walk up and they tell me what, uh, what they have and a very nice gentleman there. And so I order my food and I'm waiting. And so while I'm waiting, he takes a tray of pralines. Is that how you say I'm here in Texas? Pralines, pralines. But he takes a tray of pralines and, and he just sets them right out in front of me. And then he goes and starts preparing my food. Now, I'll tell you, I don't even like pralines. I'm not a candy person and that just doesn't appeal to me. But I got to looking at those pralines. And after a while, I thought, you know, it's probably been 10 years since I've had a praline. Maybe they've gotten better over 10 years. <laughs> and maybe Texas pralines are better than New Orleans pralines. I thought, I wonder if he would sell me one of these. And then I thought, I wonder if he'd sell me two or three of these. <laughs> Sure enough, they were for sale. And um, I went home with some pralines. And I see, I think that's how Satan attacks us. He just sets something in front of us that entices us. And that's what Jesus faced. And so when we see this account in the life of Christ, we're really seeing Jesus on the front lines of the battle. And uh, we, we see what the front lines look like when we find ourselves in the same place. So we said that decisive battle number one last week is that often uh, we refuse to wait on God. We just refuse to wait. Uh, we're going to see today that decisive battle number two is that we often just trivialize sin. And so let's look at this together. Matthew chapter four, and we'll go back and begin reading in verse one. It says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And so we saw that last week. He is tempting him. He is enticing him because of his hunger. Verse four, he answered, it is written, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he uses a scripture verse to, to uh, combat the the temptation of Satan, a verse that he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And then verse five, we come to the second temptation, which is our focus this morning. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the holy city here is Jerusalem. The, the pinnacle of the temple, we don't know exactly where that was on the temple structure, uh, but historians tell us that at the very minimum, this would have been 300 feet high, maybe 400, maybe 450 feet high, but it was a very high place. It would have been a long fall. It would have been a, a deadly fall. And so the devil takes Jesus uh, to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle of the temple. And here's what he says, verse six, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against 
a stone. Now we should spend some time there. I think one of the most interesting things about this verse is it's just, well, it's, it's, this, it's this temptation where Satan is saying, if, if you will really trust to God, you can go and do this thing that is a reckless thing and you can see, you can test, and you will discover if God's going to be faithful to what, he has, uh, to what he has promised to do. Now, what's interesting here is that Satan quotes a scripture verse. Uh, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 is, the, is the, where Satan gets these words, where it says, he will give his angels concerning you. Now, some have suggested that Satan misquotes that passage, and he may. He certainly leaves out a phrase Uh, It's also true that when Jesus and when the apostles quote Old Testament passages, that they too sometimes leave out a phrase or just quote part of the verse. So we don't know for sure if he misquoted the verse, but we know this much. At the very least, he misapplied the verse. See, Psalm 91 is a great psalm about the protection and the provision of God and how we can trust God in everything. But Satan took a verse that was about trusting God and he turns it into a verse that's about testing God. And we'll see that in the next, uh, in Jesus' reply. So let's just continue on. Verse 7, it says, Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Now, There is a part of this verse that's easy to skip over. Just those first few words, it is also written. Jesus said, it is written. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. We'll see that in a moment. But but I want you to notice, I don't want to go too quickly over those first four words, it is also written. You see, Satan had quoted scripture in his temptation. And Jesus acknowledges that, says, okay, well, that's in the Bible. But it's also in the Bible, and he quotes something else. Now, why is that important? Well, Jesus is teaching us that in order to understand the Bible, we need to compare one Bible verse with another Bible verse. You know, you can prove just about anything you want by taking a few words out of context, a few random words out of the Bible, and apply them to whatever your situation is. You can prove all kinds of things. But that's not the correct way to read the Bible. What we need to do is to take what one verse says and compare it with what all the other verses say. And so when we see all of what the Bible says, it'll be very clear what it is that we should believe and what is the truth. And so when Satan quotes a verse, then Jesus says, well, you should know that it is also written. And I'm going to add this other verse to the verses that you quoted so that we can have the true picture. But then notice what Jesus quotes. Do not test the Lord your God. What does it mean to test the Lord? I believe to test the Lord means to, to, to do something based on what you think God has promised you to do something and then to see if God's going to be faithful to his promise. Now, to do that in a negative way, let me give you, let me give you some uh, ways that this happens. Number one, we sin while expecting God's forgiveness. This is called presuming upon the grace of God, and we do it all the time. As Christians, we know that God will forgive us, right? We know that because of the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. And so sometimes, while we wouldn't say this out loud, the thought process in our minds is, I I, I know God's going to forgive me, so I can go ahead and do this sin. I can go ahead and do this thing that I know is wrong, 
Because I know in the end, God will forgive me. That is testing God. That is sinning while expecting God's forgiveness. And I think we do that all the time. We're so casual about sin because we're just presuming upon the grace of God. The true attitude that every Christian should have is what? That we hate sin, that we grieve over sin, that we regret sin. But oftentimes we test God because we just sin expecting God to forgive us. Another way we do this is we take risks with the goal of manipulating God. Uh, we do something that we know is unwise, and it certainly would have been unwise for Jesus to have leaped from the top of a, of a, of a temple to, to jump down three, 400 feet. We do something that we know is unwise, and the whole time we're planning on praying for God's protection. Have you ever done that? I mean, you know that you shouldn't do this. You know it's unwise. You know that th this would be a foolish thing to do, a reckless way to live. But you do it planning on praying for God's protection, planning on claiming God's promises, hoping in God's kindness. I'll tell you some ways we do this. Sometimes we will spend money that we don't have on things that we don't need. Have you ever done that? I've done that. And when we do that sometimes with this attitude that, well, when I get in trouble, when the bill comes due, when, when I'm between a rock and a hard place, then I'm going to cry out to God. God, you must provide for me and my family. And so we do foolish things. We spend money in foolish ways, just hoping, just planning on God rescuing us in the end. Sometimes we do this because we fail to exercise and eat right. Okay. Any of us guilty of this? We, we fail to exercise and eat right because we plan on asking God to protect our health, to restore our health and bring healing to our lives. And so we just go out and we eat whatever we want to eat and we, we live however we want to live. And, and we, we, our plan is, I'm just going to pray, okay? That's living recklessly, taking a risk with the goal of manipulating God. We'll neglect our marriages. We'll neglect our marriages, not pay attention to our to our wife, to our husband, not spend time with them and encourage them in the faith, not, not date our wives, not, not do the things that we need to do in order to protect our marriage. And, and, and our plan is, I'm not going to pay attention to my, to my marriage, but I, I'm just going to pray when, when there's a crisis that God will straighten things out. We are testing the Lord. Some people won't attend church very faithfully. I mean, they'll come occasionally, but, but they're not very faithful. And, and, and their plan is that when, they get, when their kids get older, then, then they're just going to come see the pastor and say, listen, we've got to pray that my kids will go in the right direction. We've got to pray as my kids get older that they'll make wise decisions. But all this time, we've been testing the Lord. Uh, we marry an unbeliever. How many people do you know who've done this? They marry an unbeliever because, well, pastor, I'm in love. I mean, I'm just really in love with this person. And, and, and I'm, just, I'm just praying that things will work out, that God will take care of things, that he will, he will change their hearts. And, and so what we're doing, we're testing God. We're living uh, reckless, risky lives, the hope of manipulating God. Uh, I counseled with, um, with a lady about, I don't know, a few months ago. She, she came and, and said, I've got a problem with my mother, with her mother, not my mother. And um, 
her mother was, uh, I don't know, I think in her late 60s. And uh, she said, my mother called me and uh, the doctor, her family doctor has told her uh, that she needs to get a mammogram. Uh, but she has refused. She's never had one. And she says she's not going to get one now because she is going to trust the Lord with her health. And so uh, this, uh, this lady who came to me said, well, what should, I, what should I tell my mom? Now, listen, I'm not a doctor. I don't have any medical advice. I don't know anything about schedules and when you ought to do what kind of tests. Go ask somebody else, right? But here's what I told her to tell her mom. There is a fine line between trusting God and living recklessly. And see, sometimes we take risks that we shouldn't take and we're manipulating, we're seeking to manipulate God to come through for us in the end. And we're testing God. There's a third way we test God. Sometimes we forget the difference between guilt and consequences. Uh, we know that God has promised to forgive our sins uh, but we think when we hear that promise that God will forgive our sins, that what he really means is that he will remove the consequences for sin. But I want you to know God never promises to remove the consequences. God does promise to forgive the sins of his children, but God never promises to remove the consequences. And we need to, re we need to remember that. I, I've been doing in my daily Bible reading this last week, I've been reading about um, Moses and Aaron as they're leading the, uh, the Israelites uh, through the desert, this 40 years where they were being punished because of their lack of faith in God. But they're still headed to the promised land. And it was, it was Moses' dream to go to the promised land, to lead the people in the promised land. That was what the last 40 years of his life had been about, to lead the people to the promised land. But then what, what's interesting is that the Bible makes it clear that God forgave Moses for his sin. Moses had, had sinned as he was leading the people and God forgave Moses for his sin. But God tells Moses, though you have been forgiven, you still can't go to the promised land. And Moses was disappointed. In fact, God took Moses up on a high mountain so he could peer over into the promised land. And God said, look, there it is. But you can't go because the consequences of your sin remain. See, we test God when we forget there's a difference between guilt and consequences. And we expect God to not only remove the guilt, but also the consequences. A bunch of years ago, a bunch of years ago, I, was, uh, I spoke at youth camps. And uh, one, of the, one of the talks that I did, and I look back on it, it's pretty corny now, but... Uh, I would have a, a board that would be about two feet by, by one foot, and I would drive into the board about 50 nails uh, that would spell out the word SIN, S-I-N, capital letters. And I would show the teenagers the board, and uh, while I would talk about the forgiveness of God, I would take a hammer, walk around, I'd talk, I'd remove the nails one at a time. And I, I was talking about how God can forgive your sin no matter what you do. The grace of God will forgive your sin. And so that was my talk. 
And at the end of the talk, all the nails were gone and, 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 and teenagers are sort of visual. We're all visual. And uh, so that was my talk. Now, my next talk, I'd be a camp and, you know, there'd be one talk one night and then another talk the next night or the next morning. So the next talk, I would bring the board back out and I would hold it up. Now, the nails are gone, but the nail holes remained and you could still see S-I-N. You could still see it in the board. And I talked to the young people about how while God will forgive your sin, there will be scars, there will be consequences, there will be holes that will always remain. And so we test God when we, when we sin, uh, expecting God to forgive us, when we live recklessly, expecting God to rescue us, and when we forget the difference between guilt and consequences. So what should we do? When we face temptation, when temptation comes our way, when, when Satan puts the tray of pralines in front of us, what should we do? Well, we should do what Jesus did. And so Jesus quotes this verse, Deuteronomy 6.16. You see there, right there in verse 7, Jesus told him, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. Uh, so this is Jesus' response, and we should have the same response, but I want you to understand a little bit more about it. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, where this comes from, is a very significant chapter in the Old Testament. In fact, a lot of times we, we don't spend time studying the book of Deuteronomy, but do you know what Jesus' favorite book of the Bible was? Deuteronomy. He's always quoting Deuteronomy. Almost every time you read of Jesus quoting the Old Testament, it's the book of Deuteronomy. Not every time, but most times. He does it three times just right here in Matthew chapter 4. So this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now the whole chapter is important. In fact, the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 6 are about parenting. And if you're a parent... If you're a parent of a child still in the home, you ought to know Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. This just ought to stick in your mind. You ought to go home, you ought to write it down right now in the margin, and you ought to go home and you ought to read it over and over and over. It's the most important passage for every parent, for every grandparent to know about how you can leave an impact, a godly impact on your, on your child. So that's 1 through 9. Now Jesus is quoting from the second section, verses 10 through 19. And while Jesus just quotes one part of this, really his reply represents the whole section, 10 through 19, this whole section, this whole truth. And so Jesus quotes it in a negative way. He says, do not test the Lord. But I want you to see uh, the same thing put positive, positively. So we're not to test the Lord. Do not test the Lord. What's the opposite of testing the Lord? Well, the opposite of testing the Lord is honoring the Lord. And so I want us to go to this section, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you can turn there. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. But I want you to see, here's what Jesus was saying when he faced this temptation. This temptation to just leap from the pinnacle and see what God would do, see if God would rescue him. When he faced this temptation, this is what he did. He honored the Father in exactly the way we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So, the first thing that we're going to learn from this passage, and we're going to read several verses, but the first thing that we're going to learn from this passage is that if we want to honor the Lord, we must remember the Lord's goodness. And so the pralines are before you. I mean, you're thinking about sin. You're, you're enticed to sin. What's the first thing you should do? 
you should remember the Lord's goodness. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, let me read beginning in verse 10. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that he would give you a land with a large and beautiful cities that you did not build, houses full of every good thing that you did not fill them with, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. What he says is when God gives you this, this wonderful life, here's what you should do. And when you eat and are satisfied, he says, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of, of slavery. And so when God is so good to you and you face temptation, you should remember just how good God has been. Our relationship with God ought to be motivated by thankfulness for how good God has been not out of obligation. You know, there are some relationships we have that are obligation relationships. Last year, about June of last year, I had a health insurance crisis in my life. I was, uh, had an Affordable Care Act insurance policy with just an extraordinarily high deductible. Uh, I had kids with some really big medical bills, and so I was struggling to get all of that taken care of. And then in the middle of that, my insurance company went bankrupt. And they went bankrupt just piece at a time. The part of them that took money from me worked fine. <laughs> the part that paid the medical bills, they uh, went into receivership, and I don't even know what all that means. Some of your financial people, you will. But they went bankrupt. And so then I had to get another insurance company. And so now I've got two insurance companies and a bunch of insurance bills, and so the fight began. <laughs> and I was on the phone for hours and hours and hours with uh, the hospitals, insurance company number one, uh, we just really had a skeleton crew left to take my phone call, I guess, and uh, then the insurance company number two that was sort of late to the game, and so they sort of had a different view of things. And, and I told the hospitals, listen, I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna pay my bills, but, but, but I'm going to hold some people's feet to the fire. I'm going to make sure that these other insurance companies pay exactly what they owe. I, I had a contract with that first insurance company. I faithfully paid my premiums. I wanted them to pay the medical bills. And so, listen, we, we fought hard because I didn't want to pay one penny that they were contracted to pay. It was a relationship of obligation. Does that make sense? That's not how things should work in your relationship with God. You, you shouldn't be going to God and trying to figure out if there's some loophole in this and say, God, listen, God, Jesus died for a whole lot of sins that I hadn't committed yet. And so I'm going to go and commit some more sins and you're obligated to cover the sins that I commit. We, we, see, we shouldn't be looking for loopholes. We should be so overwhelmed at the goodness of God to us that our relationship is motivated not by some loophole, not by obligation, not by what we can sneak away with, but our relationship should be obligated by, should, should be driven by our thankfulness for God's goodness. If I told you that I loved my wife, uh, she's watching, uh, I think, on the internet right now, so I'll be careful. Um, but if I told you that I, I loved my wife, but... I was also reviewing my wedding vows to see if there might be a loophole in there somewhere 
you know, that would allow me to have some kind of uh, illicit relationship. And I, you know, I, I love her, but I'm, you know, I, I'm reviewing the vows. Let's just leave it at that. Now, if I told you that, you would question my love for my wife, and you should. Well, if, if you're looking for some technicality that will allow you to sin because God has promised to, to cover your sin with grace, if you're, if you're looking for a way to live a risky life because God has given you promises of rescue, then there's reason to question the very love that you have for God. And so how do we honor God? First of all, we need to remember the Lord's goodness. Secondly, uh, we need to fear the Lord. And so when Jesus said, do not test the Lord, he's, he's talking about uh, remembering God's goodness, but, but he's also talking about fearing the Lord. So let's look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and read in verse 13. He says, fear the Lord your God. Worship him and take your oaths in his name. So he says, fear the Lord. Verse 14, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God, listen to this, will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. See, sometimes we get so casual about sin and grace. We're just so casual. I know I sin. Everybody sins. God loves me. Jesus died for me. We just get so casual about this sin and grace that we end up sinning just in the hopes, we're testing God just in the hopes that the grace will cover our sin. We're just too casual about this. Now, we know that there's a danger in this. God's grace is so wonderful that there is some danger here. It's easy to get casual about sin because God's grace is so wonderful. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote about this. And I can show this to you on the screen. Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul said, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not, he says. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So even the Apostle Paul knew that some people were going to get way too casual about sin. And they were just going to so test the Lord. They were just going to have such a casual attitude that they would just sin like crazy. And so Paul addressed this. We need to understand that we need to have always just this healthy fear of the Lord. And I know the Bible says that we should pray, Abba, Father, that he is our dear Father, And he is, and we should, but we should also revere him and respect him as the Lord, the sovereign one, uh, the king, the judge. We should should fear him. Proverbs 16, 6 said, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Now that talks about God's part. By steadfast love and faithfulness. Iniquity, that sin, is atoned for. That means forgiven. And, look at our part, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And and so when Jesus said, do not test the Lord your God, he's talking about the fact we ought to remember just how good God has been to us and not... And, and, and not, not test God, not, not look for a loophole, but we also ought to have just this reverent fear of the Lord. Don't be so casual about, about the effects of sin. And then the third thing we should do is we should be careful and wise. Now I want you to see two more verses. 
Verse 16 is the verse that we've skipped here in Deuteronomy 6. That's the verse that Jesus quotes. But then we look at verse 17. He says, carefully observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees and the statutes that he has commanded you. So observe, be careful to observe. So be careful. And then look at verse 18. He says, do what is right and is good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper and so that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord God swore to give to your father. So he, he, he says here to be wise. So, so, so know what God wants us to do and be careful to do it. You know, we've created a number of, uh, of amusements that allow us to live recklessly. Uh, just fun, fun things. I'll show a couple of them to you on the screen. Uh, one would be paintball wars. Any of you ever done paintball? I've never actually done this before, but uh, understand you go out and you, you have something that looks like a gun and you shoot people, but it's not, it, it, a bullet doesn't come out, paint comes out. And so it just lets you to, you know, have your inner child run recklessly around the field and shoot at people, but, but no harm, right? It doesn't hurt anybody. And, and then we've got some other things like bumper cars. Now I have done bumper cars. Have you ever done this? Last time I went and uh, did bumper cars with my kids, there was a big sign when you got in the bumper car that said, do not bump into other cars. <laughs> and I thought, I drove three hours in a car that I couldn't bump into other cars to get here for one purpose. I am going to bump into other cars. That's the only reason I'm here. And so... But, you, but bumper cars, you, you just go and it, it, you know, there are no rules of the road, right? You, you just can, can drive recklessly. And, uh, and then my favorite, the inflatable suit. And uh, so we've got we to get a bunch of these and just have like a staff inflatable suit battle in the backfield or something one day. Wouldn't that be a lot of fun? And um, so you just run around, you run into things, it doesn't hurt anybody. And, and, and listen... It's, it's fun to be reckless sometimes, but the cross of Christ is not some reckless amusement. God does not, because of the cross of Christ, give us liberty to just live however in the world we want to, to shrug off sin and consequences because of God's grace, to live unwisely because of God's promises. And see, when Satan took Jesus up to that temple mount and he said, jump down because the Bible says God will rescue you before you hit the bottom. That's the same temptation that you and I face every day. When Satan says, you can look at that on the internet. It's sin, but you can look at it because you're a child of God and he's going to forgive you anyway. You can live recklessly with your finances and with your health because God promises to take care of you. You can neglect the spiritual welfare of your children because the promises of God say that your children, if they will always turn back to the, to, to the right way. 
Well, listen, when that happens, you're, you're up on that temple mount and Satan is trying to get you to test the Lord. But if we understand how good God has been, if we understand the difference between sin, guilt, and consequences, then we will use the steps. You know what I mean? We will live the wise, the right, and the God-honoring way that God has provided for us to live. You know, I want to tell you about um, the most wonderful thing in the universe. It's so wonderful, it's hard for a, for a pastor, for a preacher to even describe it well. Uh, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. And if you think you understand it, uh, you, you only prove your folly because it is so wonderful we can't understand it. And that wonderful thing is the grace and the forgiveness of God. Okay, it is, it is without limit. It is not dependent upon your lifestyle. It is not dependent upon your ability to keep the rules. It is not dependent upon your ability to keep your promises. It is, it is 100% from the Lord. It has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. It covers all sins, all imaginable sins. It covers everything you could possibly think about. It, it, it is so wonderful that the Bible calls it scandalous. It's scandalous. Some people just, they, they, they hate to hear about the grace of God because it seems so unfair that somebody could live and do some of the most horrific things we could imagine and God can just in a moment forgive all of that. I don't mean put them on a payment plan. I don't mean lessen the judgment. I don't mean cut the penalty in half. But no, that God would just forgive, just completely forgive. It's scandalous to a lot of people. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because as people who possess the grace of God, there are a lot of possibilities out there. And, and Satan likes to remind us of those things. God's grace is so wonderful. It is, it is a dangerous thing. So what should we do? Well, first of all, if you don't know Christ as your Savior... Let me tell you, you need to have this grace. You, you need to understand that you'll never have a right relationship with God because you have, you have improved yourself to the point that you have presented yourself so well to God that you have kept enough rules, that you have lived well enough that God would be pleased with you. Never will you get there. But the grace of God is available and if you will put your trust in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, then God will forgive you. God will forgive every sin you've ever done. And, and, and not just partially, not just a little bit, but God will completely forgive. You will not ever be a second-class citizen in God's family. You'll never be an untouchable. God's grace is complete. And this morning, no matter what your history is, no matter how many other times you've made promises to God and you have failed, you can be completely forgiven. And I invite you to that. That's, that's the joy of being a preacher of the gospel, that I can invite people to that. But listen, a lot of us, we, we're under grace, right? We, we already have grace. And so what should we do? Well, we should live with appreciative thankful hearts. This isn't for us a relationship of obligation. 
This isn't about loopholes. This isn't about whether God will come through for us in the end. Let us live a life thankful to the Lord. You know, the church here has been so good to me. So I, I moved here a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago now. And uh, my family is back in uh, Ohio. Uh, we've got children finishing out the school year. My oldest daughter is graduating. And uh, we have a house to sell there. So uh, pray for that. So the family's living back in Ohio. So the church, you have been so kind to me uh, to put me in the mission house great house. You've never been there. This church has a great asset to use to bless missionaries. And I'm loving living in the mission house. And, and you know, this is, a, this is a pretty nice perk. And I'll tell you, I'm not paying rent. I, I don't think I'm paying utilities. I hadn't paid on land and gotten turned off, right? I don't know. I guess we'll see how that works uh, here in a month or two. But uh, I didn't put down a security deposit. I didn't sign a contract. I'm just living there. I could, uh, I could rip up the carpet if I wanted to, right? I mean, nobody would know, at least for a few weeks. I could, I could knock holes in the wall. I could, I could just stick the trash in the attic. I mean, I could, my wife's not around, right? <laughs> and you wouldn't have any recourse. I mean, like I said, I'm not under any obligation. But do you think that's how I'm living there? Every time I unlock that door and I walk into that home, I am thankful for your goodness. Listen, I don't need a, I don't need a contract to tell me to take good care of the house. I, you're not going to lose money because there's not a security deposit, right? Because I'm, I'm thankful that I get to live there. And I, I, I'm going to treat the house not, not based on some contract or the lack of a, no, I'm going to, I'm going to treat the house out of my thankfulness for your kindness to let me live there for two or three months. Now you get up tomorrow morning. You, you got a lot of options as a child of God. You are forgiven. You are, you're forgiven. Well, what if I, well, no, you're forgiven. But the way you ought to get up tomorrow is you ought to open your eyes and you ought to see the goodness of God's provision. And you ought to live in a way that will honor that. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Father, teach us, teach us to treat with reverence this valuable gift of your grace and your mercy. And Father, for those here today who, uh, who are striving to be good people and maybe better than most of us, but they know that they've never received the grace of God. May, have they, may they have the courage just to step forward as, as others sing and, and just to let somebody know here at the front, hey, today I want to know the grace of God. But Father, the rest of us, may we wake up every day with lives filled with thankfulness for what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.